Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're getting very extra, talking about extra chromosomal DNA, what it is, what it does, and why it's responsible for all sorts of genetic shenanigans. Plus, we discover what happens when nature gets up to a spot of genetic engineering. Before we start, I'd like to draw your attention to a radio series I think you might enjoy. Bug in the System, The Past, Present and Future of Cancer is a three-part documentary series on BBC Radio 4, presented by me, and taking a look at where cancer came from, where it's going, and how we might finally beat it. In the first episode, we delve back in time and expand across species to understand cancer as a deep biological phenomenon rather than a purely human disease. In the second, I discover why, despite more than a century of dedicated research and an arsenal of sophisticated drugs that cost a small fortune, we're still not very good at treating advanced cancers that have spread around the body, thanks to a pesky little thing called evolution. And in the final show, I find out how we might finally be able to beat this evolutionary monster with a little help from some mischievous moths and our own immune systems. These are all themes that I explored in my book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, and I've been so excited to work with a brilliant BBC producer, Beth Sagar-Fenton, to turn them into a radio series, interviewing some of the leading cancer researchers around the world, as well as archaeologists, historians and patients. You can listen to all three parts of Bug in the System on the BBC Sounds app. Just search for Bug in the System Cat Arnie or follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And of course, if you want to delve deeper, my book Rebel Cell is still available in paperback and ebook from all good and all evil bookstores. Now, one question I always like to ask researchers is, what's really weird? It often throws up some fascinating phenomena that are on the frontiers of research, or curiosities from the past that deserve a closer look. Well, when I spoke to Professor Charles Swanton from UCL and the Francis Crick Institute for Bug in the System, his answer to that question was extra-chromosomal DNA. And because we didn't have time to squeeze it into our radio show, I thought I'd do a bit more digging and share the story with you. So here we go. Let's get a little bit extra. When you think about DNA, I'm willing to bet you either zoom in to imagine the double helix itself or zoom out, picturing DNA neatly bundled into X-shaped chromosomes. But while it is true that most of our genome, a staggering two metres of DNA in every cell, is packaged into these structures, that's not the whole story. If you've been paying attention to our previous episodes, you'll also know that mitochondria also have their own little package of DNA, as do chloroplasts, the light-harvesting structures in plants. And then there's the weird stuff. 
Our story starts in 1964 with two researchers named Yasuo Hotta and Alex Bassel, who were working at the University of Illinois to understand how DNA is organized in the chromosomes of complex organisms like mammals. Their experiments involved looking at the DNA of boar sperm using electron microscopy, which uses electron beams rather than light rays to generate incredibly high-resolution images of the contents of cells. Boar sperm might seem like an unusual choice of study material, but not only was it fairly easy to acquire, and I'll leave you to picture how, it was relatively easy to isolate DNA from the cells for the complicated preparation techniques required for electron microscopy. Looking at the images, Hotter and Basil noticed something strange. Nestled in amongst the regular chromosomes were circles of DNA of various sizes. The larger circles they named double minutes as they seem to appear in pairs. This was the first time these structures, now known as extrachromosomal DNA, were spotted in mammalian cells. About a year later, three scientists, David Cox, Catherine Yunkin and Arthur Spriggs, were examining chromosomes extracted from neuroblastoma tumour cells under the microscope. This particular cancer, usually found in young children, originates in nerve cells and can be very challenging to treat effectively. They too spotted double minutes lurking around the chromosomes of these cancer cells. The first time extrachromosomal DNA was spotted in human cells. Over the years, a handful of researchers kept on investigating these mysterious little rings. But extrachromosomal DNA was largely ignored by most of the scientific community for the next five decades. Why? Well, it was generally thought that although they were a biological curiosity, these rings probably played little to no role in cancer or in biology in general. Most people thought that they were just genetic trash. After all, these tiny little dots under the microscope couldn't be that important, could they? During this time, the field of cytogenetics, the study of chromosomes, was growing rapidly, driven by improvements in microscopy and staining techniques. These new advancements revealed ever more detailed information about chromosomes and how they got messed up in cancer cells, which we've covered in more detail in our previous Genetics Unzipped episode, Fusion Genes and Cancer Cures, the story of the Philadelphia chromosome. Cancer became increasingly viewed as a disease of mutated genes and rearranged chromosomes, creating altered proteins that drive cancer cells to proliferate out of control. At the same time, drug developers increasingly focused on designing highly targeted therapies that would lock onto these faulty proteins and block their function, with the aim of stopping tumours in their tracks. But there was a problem. A drug would work for a bit, and the cancer would shrink, but then it stopped working and the cancer came back. Or sometimes they just didn't work at all. For all the hype about these magic bullets and the hefty price tags, they weren't the cure for cancer we had all been hoping for. The reasons for this are manyfold, but one of them is extrachromosomal DNA. And the reason we now know about that is thanks in no small part to the work of one scientist, Paul Michel. But why did these long-ignored little circles catch his eye? Mm, 
Michel, along with many others in the cancer research field, was searching for an explanation as to why some cancers, like glioblastoma brain tumours, don't respond to a specific type of therapy called EGFR inhibitors. In theory, EGFR inhibitors should work brilliantly. They target mutations in the epidermal growth factor receptor gene, a gene that promotes aggressive tumour growth. However, in reality, they often fail to effectively shrink tumours in patients with cancers carrying the very mutations they specifically target. This paradox has puzzled the cancer research community for years. Advances in genetic sequencing technologies mean the scientists of today spend less time peering through the microscope. It was these methods that drove the completion of the Human Genome Project and many other subsequent large-scale sequencing programs aimed at reading the DNA from thousands of tumour samples. But these techniques specifically focus on reading DNA packaged in chromosomes and ignore everything else. Michel decided to go back to basics and dusted off the microscope to take a closer look at the cells in glioblastoma tumours. Just like the scientists in 1965, he spotted those tiny dots, extra-chromosomal DNA. But unlike back then, Michel had specially stained the tumours beforehand using a technique that highlights specific genes. Michel stained the EGFR genes red and the chromosomes blue. Based on the scientific consensus of just 10 years ago, what he expected to see was a clump of red standing out on a strand of blue, representing an array of multiplied, mutated EGFR genes within a chromosome. Instead, what he saw were small red dots sprinkled about outside the blue chromosomes. Slowly, the horrible truth began to dawn. Rather than being housed within a chromosome, these aberrant EGFR genes were located on tiny circles of extra-chromosomal DNA. And that might explain why these cancers were so difficult to treat with drugs that ought to be a magic bullet. Michel decided to investigate further. When the tumours were treated with EGFR inhibitors, the red dots disappeared. But once the drug was removed, the extra-chromosomal DNA quickly reappeared, and those cancer-promoting genes were back in action. But why did those pesky circles reappear again? Extra-chromosomal DNA contributes to something called tumour heterogeneity. This means the collection of cells within a tumour are all different to each other, expressing different genetic mutations. This can make the tumour very hard to treat, as cancer cells replicate rapidly when you find a therapy that kills off some of the cells with a certain gene mutation, the cancer cells with a different mutation survive, and the tumour keeps growing. So how does extra-chromosomal DNA contribute to this problem? Well, when cells replicate, each chromosome is copied, and the two copies divided between the two cells that form. So each daughter cell ends up with more or less the same DNA as its parent. But genes carried on extra-chromosomal DNA aren't subject to the same rules as regular chromosomes when it comes to replication and inheritance. Extra-chromosomal DNA circles lack something called centromeres. 
Centromeres are structures found within each chromosome that enable each freshly replicated copy to be accurately and evenly shared out as the cell divides. Without centromeres to guide them, circles of extrachromosomal DNA are randomly scattered between the two daughter cells. So some cells might end up with loads, while others have very few. Cancer cells with lots of extrachromosomal DNA circles carrying the mutated EGFR gene get killed off by the drug. But the cancer cells with only a few, fewer than could be detected using Michel's microscopy technique, survive. Once the treatment is stopped, the surviving cells quickly put extrachromosomal DNA back into production. And unlike the DNA tightly packed inside chromosomes, the genes on extrachromosomal DNA circles are easier for the cell to access, meaning that they're easier to activate. The mutated EGFR gene in the circles gets switched back on, causing the cancer cells to start growing rapidly again. And as before, as the cells replicate, some cells have loads of circles, others have only a few, and the cycle continues. Michel and his team first published their findings about extrachromosomal DNA carrying cancer-driving genes in 2013, reigniting interest in this long-ignored field. But maybe it shouldn't have been such a surprise. After all, simpler organisms like bacteria have been up to these kinds of extrachromosomal shenanigans for a very long time. Plasmids are small circles of extrachromosomal DNA that get swapped between bacterial cells, often containing genes that enable the bugs to resist the effects of antibiotics. And in the same way that we can blame these plasmids for the rise of antimicrobial-resistant superbugs, we can also blame extrachromosomal DNA circles in cancer cells for making them hard to treat and resistant to therapy. As Michel and his colleagues note in another paper from 2019, in bacteria, small circular plasmids represent a prevalent and powerful mechanism for rapidly gaining selective advantage. We speculate that oncogene-containing circular extrachromosomal DNA in human cancers represents the conceptual equivalent, highlighting crucial gene variants and mechanisms for oncogenesis and therapeutic resistance. They aren't wrong. Today, we know that extrachromosomal DNA is found in at least one in seven cancers, and patients whose tumours carry cancer-driving genes on their extrachromosomal DNA, rather than in their regular chromosomes, are less likely to survive their disease. And that's not all. Extrachromosomal DNA circles can contain aberrant genetic control switches, as well as genes themselves, driving high levels of gene activity to keep cancer cells multiplying. And they can even hop back into chromosomes, mixing things up even more. These troublesome toroids are a major obstacle when it comes to curing cancer. So, what do we do about them? Despite its obvious significance in cancer biology, relatively little is known about extrachromosomal DNA, partly because it's much harder to isolate and study than regular chromosomes. But we really need to figure out where these circles come from and how they work if we're to come up with more effective ways to treat cancer. 
For his part, Michel and his colleagues are now working on a major project called eDynamic, one of the Charity Cancer Research UK's grand challenges that aim to answer the really big questions in cancer research. In fact, it was Charles Swanton himself, who I mentioned right at the start, who championed the need to have a project looking at the mysteries of extrachromosomal DNA. We're just beginning to see how important extrachromosomal DNA is in the evolution of tumours. It's entirely unpredictable, entirely chaotic, and very difficult to target, he said when Michel's winning team was announced. We need to understand extrachromosomal DNA if we're going to understand cancer drug resistance, and this team will help us get to the heart of that problem much more quickly. We need to understand its biology, how it evolves, how it's maintained, and ultimately, how to target it. The eDynamic project kicked off in 2022, with a huge multidisciplinary research team coming at the problem of extrachromosomal DNA from many angles. According to the Cancer Research UK news story, they are inspired by strategies used by jazz musicians to think and work creatively, uniting mathematical modelling to predict tumour evolution, and biology studies challenging the understanding of how a cell functions, as well as viewing what's happening in patients in real time. After many decades of going round in circles, it looks like time has finally come for extrachromosomal DNA to close the loop on cancer research and hopefully lead to some new ideas for cures. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com. Or come and say hi to us over on Twitter. We're still there, at geneticsunzip. And a reminder that the next Genetic Society meeting is on the genetics of future food production and the Green Revolution 2.0. It's running from the 7th to the 9th of November at Newcastle University in the UK. And registration is still open, with grants available for junior researchers, as well as a carer's allowance to support attendance at the meeting. Find out more and register for your place now by heading to genetics.org.uk slash event. Or, as usual, follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Extrachromosomal DNA may be weird, but it's just one of the many ways that cells break the rules when it comes to chromosomal behaviour. If you know anything about mammalian development, you'll know that we start life from a single cell, formed when egg and sperm meet, each bringing half a set of chromosomes that together make up the full genome. These chromosomes get copied and divided up time and time again as that single cell divides into two cells, four cells, eight cells, a tiny ball of cells, an embryo, and then, ultimately, a new animal. So, to all intents and purposes, the chromosomes in one of the cells in your skin, liver, brain, bowel, or pretty much anywhere else, are broadly pretty much the same as the chromosomes in that very first cell when your mummy and daddy made you. But what seems obvious to us now wasn't always common knowledge. (music) 
Let's travel back in time to the late 19th century. Back then, August Weismann was a big-shot German scientist who had major clout in the field of developmental biology, which is all about unravelling the mystery of how different tissues form in the developing embryo, known as differentiation. He had a theory that only germ cells, sperm and eggs, held the entire set of genetic instructions needed to make an animal. As cells divided and specialised as an embryo developed and grew, they lost some of that crucial info, keeping only the correct instructions for their specific cell type. Given the evidence available at the time, Weismann's theory seemed legit, and it was backed up by work done two years earlier in 1887 by a scientist called Theodore Bovary. At this time, Bovary was knee-deep in horse manure, studying parasitic roundworms called Ascaris. But one horse's poop is another man's treasure, and Bovary found some intriguing clues in the muck. He noticed that as these worms developed, large portions of a darkly staining substance in each cell, which he termed chromatin, was getting eliminated. He named this process chromatin diminution and suspected that it was something to do with the instructions that tell cells what to do, long before the discovery of genes. As a side note connected to our first story, Bovary also has an important role in the history of cancer genetics, as the first person to discover that cancer cells have abnormal chromosomes, sowing the seeds for the idea many decades later that cancer is driven by genetic mutations. Based on Bovary's equine poop parasite observations, it would have seemed obvious that cells chuck out the instructions they don't need as they mature. But hold your horses, folks, because not all organisms are cut from the same genetic cloth. As the 20th century rolled in, scientists started to understand more about heredity, chromosomes and genes. And they realised that Ascaris is an exception to the rule when it comes to genetic elimination and Weismann's theory faded into irrelevance. Fast forward to today, and we now know that most organisms keep their chromosomes stable across all cells at all stages of life, especially the germ cells. Instead of tossing genes away, they have a sophisticated switchboard of proteins and modifications that controls when, where and which genes get activated. There are a few notable exceptions, such as the genetic cutting and pasting that goes on to generate diversity in our immune cells, but it's a rule that broadly holds true. However, there are some more weirdos like Ascaris out there, which intentionally chuck out parts of their genome along the way. This process, called programmed genetic elimination, allows cells to quickly manipulate their genes allowing certain species to adapt fast and cope with tough and unique challenges. These are nature's genetic engineers, and what they get up to with their genomes will blow your mind. Lampreys are ancient eel-like creatures, which could be described as ocean-dwelling vampires. They use their jawless mouths, filled with rows of rasping teeth, to burrow into their prey's flesh, consuming their bodily fluids for sustenance. As you can already probably imagine, they aren't easy on the eye, 
Imagine a smaller, but no less horrifying version of the sandworms from Dune. But nightmarish appearances and gruesome eating habits aren't the only interesting things about lampreys. They're one of the few vertebrates that can edit their genome. During development, certain DNA sequences seem to disappear. One of them is called germ-1, which is found in germline cells. These are the cells that become egg and sperm, but is much less common in somatic cells. That's the rest of the cells that make up the body. But this vanishing act isn't random. It's a tightly regulated process that only occurs during the early stages of life as the embryo is developing. This discovery turned some established ideas on their heads and brought out some even older ideas back to the fore. After the rejection of Weissmann's ideas, scientists broadly believed that vertebrate genomes were immutable blueprints in all cells of the body, with only minor tweaks allowed. But lampreys proved us wrong. And they're not the only creepy sea creature that can alter their genome. So can copepods. Copepods are small, oar-footed crustaceans, often described as the insects of the sea. They're only a couple of millimetres in size, with a semi-transparent body and large antennae, and are found in nearly every freshwater and saltwater habitat. In seawater, on the ocean floor, in swamps, bogs, springs, puddles, patches of damp moss. Where there's water, there's probably some copepods. The most famous of the family are the Cyclops, who get their distinctive name due to their single black or red eye. Copepods, like Ascaris, undergo chromatin diminution during early embryonic development. This leads to over 90% of the total DNA content being chucked out of their genomes along the way. However, this extrachromosomal DNA doesn't just float around the cell or immediately get broken down. It gets trapped in special granules. Over time, these granules evolve, initially starting with pores in their membranes, then fusing together, after which the pores disappear. Once this happens, the DNA within the granules undergoes a range of cutting and pasting processes, chopping and changing it around until it forms some, by now familiar-sounding structures, extrachromosomal DNA rings. Why bother going to all this fuss in the first place? For the copepod Mesocyclops edax, the answer may lie in the fact that its genome has become overrun by unwanted junk DNA in the form of repetitive sequences such as transposable elements, picked up and amplified during the course of evolution, bumping up the size of its germline genome to an incredible 15 billion letters or base pairs. After taking out all this genetic trash, Mesocyclops' somatic genome is a much more manageable 3 billion base pairs. It's not necessarily very efficient, but given that it's very difficult to purge junk out of the genome through evolution, it's the way that works for this species. Plus, there may be some evolutionary benefits to being able to effectively sift through all your DNA in every cell, generating variations in different tissue types that might be biologically useful. So far, some form of chromosome elimination or genome editing has been found in a diverse range of species. 
In addition to Ascaris, copepods and lampreys, it's also been spotted in ciliates, nematodes and the lamprey's closest relatives, hagfish. You might be forgiven for thinking that these genetic antics are reserved for single-celled organisms or weird aquatic creatures. But you'd be wrong. The zebra finch is a cute little songbird with rosy red cheeks and black and white stripes on its rump and upper tail. Its captivating song has fascinated researchers for years and it's become the model of choice for studying how birds learn to sing. But what's equally fascinating is the curious way it reprograms its genome. As you might expect for such an interesting organism, researchers were quick to sequence the songbird's genome, and it was published in 2010. At that time, there was nothing to indicate anything unusual about the way that the zebra finch regulated its genome, and certainly no hint of the kinds of genetic shenanigans we've previously described for other simpler species. But that's because the zebra finch reference genome was compiled from a sample of muscle tissue collected from a male bird. In 2018, scientists carried out a detailed comparison of patterns of gene activity between somatic and germline cells in male and female birds and noticed something very weird going on. They discovered that zebra finches have a peculiar chromosome called the germline restricted chromosome, or GRC, which is removed from all non-reproductive somatic cells in the early embryo and preserved in the germ cells that are the precursors of eggs and sperm. But even then, that's not enough. The GRC is removed from mature sperm in male birds, so it's only present in the egg and it's only passed down the female line. So it wouldn't have been detected in any studies using only male samples, or even female somatic tissue. Rather than being a small genetic curiosity, the GRC is actually the largest chromosome in the finch genome at 120 million base pairs. Up until recently, it was thought to consist of junk DNA. But it turns out that the GRC actually contains many useful genes that are involved in female sex development. And zebra finches aren't the only birds that have a GRC and carry out programmed genetic elimination of it. All songbirds studied to date also have something similar going on. The world of natural genetic engineering is full of surprises and unsolved mysteries. It's likely that programmed DNA or chromosome elimination is much more widespread and present in more complex organisms than we ever imagined. And although we haven't yet found evidence of it happening in mammals, marsupial bandicoots prefer to kick out unnecessary sex chromosomes rather than just silence the irrelevant genes. This phenomenon challenges our preconceived notions on inheritance, evolution, and the very nature of genomes themselves. Not just in simpler organisms like horse poop parasites, but all the way up the evolutionary tree. And who knows what we might find in the future once we start looking more closely. Seems like Weissman wasn't completely wrong after all.
that's all for now. Next time, we'll be taking our sweet time as we explore the genetic clockwork inside living cells. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app. Five stars would be nice. And review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Miyako Rogers. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, teaching, training and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mail, audio production is by Emma Werner, and our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.